open with me to the eighth chapter, the book of Romans. This is a verse that came to my mind. Actually, it was more of an idea that came to my mind. And I was meditating on it yesterday. Romans chapter 8. Now, there's some really great promises here given to us with the condition, or let me say the caveat, predicated on the word if. So much in God's word centers around the word if. So in chapter 8, begin at verse 1 and read a few verses of this chapter to you. And here's the good news. At verse 1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, and of course this is the Mosaic law, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Look at verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we have two different pathways. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, and there's a strong word, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, there's that word, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Let me just stop there, because this is the verse from which I got this title, Christianity Without Christ. And over the years, on occasion, I've brought to you the words of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And when it was first founded, it was a massively evangelical Christian, we'll call it a denomination. Now, and it still does great works, but now we associate the Salvation Army almost exclusively with, you know, giving of clothes and things at Christmas time, which are all good things. But when William Booth initially started, one of his concepts was go for sinners and go for the worst. And they would literally march through London banging their instruments to draw attention to the cause of the gospel of what was going to be preached and what was going to be said. And from there, they reached out to some of England's most needy and desperate people. And the Salvation Army continued to grow. But what I've brought to you on occasion is the insight that William Booth had. I'll call it prophetic insight. When he stated this, and remember, this is the 1800s, so it's the 19th century. And he's looking forward into the 20th century. And of course, we live in the 21st century. But I want you to listen carefully to what William Booth saw, which has come to pass. Booth said that the chief danger that confronts the coming century, 20th century, will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, the title of my message, 
Forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. This is pretty profound. Let me say this, putting aside what I call the con artists that are in the church world, unfortunately, most or many are the ones who dominate the airwaves. Not all, but either most or many, not even recognizing them for the moment or paying attention to them. Let me talk about the good guys. In other words, the people whose doctrine is straight, orthodox, biblical, but what I will call half biblical, who preach, now religion, the word religion in the 18th century, the 19th century, into the 20th century, when written in our Western cultures, England, America, and so on, referred to Christianity. So I'll read it that way so it's as clear as possible. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be Christianity without the Holy Spirit. Christianity without Christ. Forgiveness without repentance. Salvation without regeneration. Politics without God. Heaven without hell. So what am I referring to when I say the good guys? There seems to be, well, the fact of the matter is, there are many, many preachers, I'm not even talking about the con artists. The people are simply conning you into believing something that is emphatically not true. I'm pushing them aside. I'm talking about the preacher who comes and tells you the wonderful benefits of heaven and what it's going to be like and even singing the songs when we all get to heaven and so on. But never telling you that there's another place called hell that Jesus talked about frequently. And then that leads me to the fact that people may want to be forgiven, but forget that Jesus' first message was repent and believe the gospel. We hear it truncated as believe the gospel. That's half the message of Jesus, John the Baptist, and the apostles. When we read of John the Baptist, for example, we see him preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we meet Jesus' first message, repent and believe the gospel. And then when we go to the book of Acts, the first message is identical. A little more elaborated, not a little bit more, Peter did, but it was the same message. Repent, turn away from what you're doing and receive forgiveness. I will submit to you that a half-truth, partial truth, at least may at times be equivalent to a full lie. The fact of the matter is, is that there are preachers for whatever their reasons are. Some just rationalize why they're not going to talk about these things in their efforts, even with good motives to help people. In other words, I'm saying they're not necessarily con artists. They're trying to help people, but you don't help people if you don't do it God's way. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of knowledge. We must have that first. And that is conspicuously absent in the modern church. Of which, and I don't think we'll get into the details of that today, but that is part of the great falling away. Let me call it preaching half a gospel. The good news, which is what the word gospel means, must have preceding good news, the bad news. Otherwise, the good news doesn't make sense. I've told you so many times, if there wasn't a place called hell, Jesus' death on the cross doesn't make any sense at all. This isn't just some kind of romantic feeling, like bringing flowers home to your wife or girlfriend or doing something for your husband or your boyfriend. This is more than romance. 
there was a necessity that someone should die, for we were all going to die. And then we read it earlier, in the fullness of time, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, the exchange would go on. But it's predicated upon repentance. We look at salvation without being born again. We'll see those verses in just a few minutes. Jesus said, you must be born again. And we'll look at what that means. In any case, William Booth had a very good insight into where we were headed many, many long years ago, and we have arrived. We have arrived at a church that is largely ineffective concerning the words of Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, because the preachers, to begin with, are not preaching the whole counsel of God. Yeah. And half won't do. I mean, even when you take an antibiotic for an infection, you're always instructed to finish every one. And I know many people who don't. The infection seems to have cleared up. The bottle still has some medicine in it. I'm all good. I don't need to finish it. But you know, many of you know, there's a reason. Biochemical reason, medical reason, to finish all of the antibiotic. We cannot survive on half a gospel from good people who intend to do good, who are not committed to everything this book says. I realize many people are living in a world where they don't want to hear any more, quote, bad news. But the gospel does not mean bad news, it means good news. But first, we have to confront what the Bible says about the bad news. Anything less than that flies in the face of what Jesus told us and taught us. And ultimately, if we, as we read in Proverbs, pick a path that we think is right in our sight, the ending will be a shocking surprise. As we read in Matthew chapter 7, Whosoever has these words of mine and doesn't do them, be like a man who built his house on sand. It wasn't that he wasn't building his house, he was building his house. But when the floods came and the rains came and all that, the house just fell because it wasn't built on the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. We now have in many, many places around the world, Christianity without Jesus. At least the Jesus of the Bible. I will remind you also of the words of the great Puritan pastor, Dr. John Owen, who told his own congregation at one point in his ministry, he said, you have an imaginary Jesus. Therefore, you must be satisfied with an imaginary salvation. It's pretty profound, if not frightening, that we cannot oppose this book and expect the blessings starting with heaven and working our way backward. We cannot expect the blessings when we're contradicting what God said to do or not to do and so on. Sin is described as the transgression of the law, God's law, that is still holding now to this day. You say, well, the Mosaic law was done away with, not the moral law, only the ceremonies. Not the moral law, not the Ten Commandments. That's the moral law that's been around since the foundation of the world. And you must decide what you're going to do with the Jesus of the book. We are, as I've mentioned again, throughout the years, we are a people of the book. We are linear. Doesn't mean that we're dried up intellectuals or intellectually. We are a people of the book and that's all that we have is this book and what it says. And we must not invent an imaginary Jesus. It is one thing to be deceived by a false teacher who has a Bible and comes off as a sheep, but it's another thing to deceive yourself. 
If you're clever enough, like the Ephesians were, the book of the Revelation, they could judge who was a false teacher and who wasn't. But nevertheless, Jesus says, I have something against you. You've left your first love. And we must not rely on an imaginary Jesus that is invented in our own minds. How do you know the real Jesus? You have to read the book. I don't know of any church anywhere, there may be some exceptions to what I'm about to say, but I don't know of any church anywhere that can do any justice to the congregation by accenting everything that's in this book. There has to be a desire on the part of the people to do an independent study and research the book for yourself. What did Jesus say? What did the apostles say? What did the prophets say? So for me, the words of William Booth were, as I have mentioned, prophetic insights. We now have religion without the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about the crazy, wild, and weird things that we see that goes on in certain churches that passes for the Holy Spirit. And I've been in those circles. And I've distanced myself from those circles. I don't want any part of this. Everything that happens, every thought that pops in somebody's head, every dream that they have, every movement of their body during the music is related to the Holy Spirit. Every so-called prophecy. I've had this stated to me only a couple months ago about so-and-so and so-and-so talking to a fellow pastor. He said, you know, it's prophesied. I decided I didn't even want to go there. How do I know what somebody said was of God? But I know what this book says. That much I do know. And we have a great deception going on in the church as people are making an imaginary Jesus, a figment of the imagination, a Jesus that never lived and doesn't live now. It's a false Christ. I'll submit to you as a kind of a, almost a humorous IQ test. And I have one in my library. If you pick up the Book of Mormon, where underneath the Book of Mormon are these words, another gospel of Jesus Christ. This to me is a type of humorous, the way I view it, a humorous spiritual IQ test, where all you've got to do is flip over to the first chapter of Galatians, where the Apostle Paul writes, he says, Who bewitched you? You were running well. What happened? And why, and I'm paraphrasing, why did you turn to another gospel which is not another? For though we, or an angel from heaven, if you know anything about Mormonism, if we do it, if an angel from heaven appears and preaches any other gospel than the one that we have preached unto you, let him be anathema. See, Christian teachers, they don't speak like that anymore. Anathema means curse, curse them for preaching a gospel other than the one Jesus preached. My friends, if you read your Christian history, that's what real preachers are about. They tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I submit to you that we are now in the midst of this insight. We have a religion without the Holy Spirit, the real Holy Spirit. Might I mention this in passing as well? In my observation and many years of experience, demon powers have come into the church, into the pulpit, and into these seats, passing themselves off as the Holy Spirit when they're not. We have a religion now without the Holy Spirit, in part. We have Christianity without the Christ of the Bible. 
We have the promise from preachers mainly of forgiveness without saying, but you must be born again. And we'll go through this. What does that mean? What does it mean? It's more than just raising your hand. How many of you today, you know, want to receive Christ? You've noticed that I don't do this here much. I do it from time to time. Because I believe that Christ knows the hearts of people and the seed where it's falling. And I'm not here to count heads, look for the numbers. I'm here to preach the gospel. And when we talk about forgiveness, we must say, but you must turn. Repent. We, I say we, it's not me, are promising people eternal life, salvation. But not telling them they must be born again, which again will be the subject of this message. What does it really mean? And certainly our politics are without God. One may even concede to the argument that some are making in America to take off the expression, our national motto, in God we trust. I'm not conceding to it. I'm just saying one may concede to the argument that we don't trust in God. Take his name off. We kicked him out a long time ago. Again, I'm not conceding to that. I'm just saying. Some of it actually makes sense. Politics without God. I shared on social media a few weeks ago a statement attributed to Billy Graham where he stated, in America, everybody is afraid of offending someone except God. No problem offending God. And then you take it from there. And heaven without hell. Here in Romans chapter 8, we have the good news. In verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The operative phrase, in Christ Jesus. Which one? Because there's many of them out there. The one that's in this book. And the good news, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Just a little commentary here. If you're reading a Bible other than our King James Bible, which we use here, you may see the words italicized. Or, in your version, they may not be there at all. You wonder, why am I reading words that aren't in the Bible? Well, they are in the Bible. But I won't make that an issue at the moment. It's because it doesn't matter, because when we read down, it tells us the difference between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. Could be considered a moot point. It isn't by me, but it could be. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Would you turn with me to John chapter 3? The Gospel according to John chapter 3. And we'll read this story of Jesus meeting a Pharisee late at night. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he's an important person. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now here we are in John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, a parenthetical statement here. So in many places, and I was thinking about this oddly enough just yesterday, a pastor that I knew whose faith reached out to the point that he wanted to water baptize at least one person every Sunday. And that's not a bad thing. But as I was processing my own thoughts, I had to think of this. Was this really led by the Spirit of God or just the ambition of a man? Not a bad ambition. The ambition of a man. Just every week, hey, we hit our numbers. 
In my understanding, which is many years, it's only God, and we'll see this in just a second, who moves by His Spirit and touches a heart that's prepared to receive it. Now, I baptize anybody that confesses Jesus Christ, but I sincerely, I don't know. If it's just a ceremony that we're doing, I mean, for the person, or they've truly been born again, but this much I do know. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Let's find out. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit. And what Jesus will say to us, Except a man repent and be baptized, cannot be saved. So I remind you, if you can't think of any other reason to be baptized, and there is, if we were to do this as a separate subject, which we have in the past, do it because Jesus said so. Water in the Spirit. Listen, in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But what we need to understand is that it can be religious flesh. Many of us went to church before we were born again. I went to church my whole life. I did not miss church services, but few times in my entire life, but there was a long period of time. I went to church services, but I was not born again. And it was an absolute guarantee based on the testimony of Jesus. If I was to die, even with the blessing of the preacher, or whatever prayers we said, and things that we said, I would not have seen the kingdom of God. Let me just say this to you. But that don't happen to Baptists, or Methodists, or Presbyterians. As a matter of fact, it doesn't happen to anybody other than or put it this way, it doesn't happen in our church, it's always in other churches. But we have to come to the realization, like when Nathan came to David, and gave him a story, and David was so upset, that he said, that man's going to die, and Nathan said, you're the man. You see, we like to exempt ourselves from these things that we read, but I would caution you, I do not exempt myself. I know these verses apply to me, I don't mean being born again, but other things, they apply to me, and they apply to every one of you. Every single one of you. Verse 6 again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. I'm just simply saying. You don't have to be quote a bad sinner. You can be a religious one. You can count beads. Or you can make long vigils. You can come out of one denomination and join another. And it's just rote. And it's just traditions. And it's just this is the way we do it. And still not have Jesus. Cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. We talk about a spiritual life. You can read thousands of books on the subject. And they never mention Jesus. Jesus talked about living a spiritual life. Under the aegis of the Holy Spirit. One that will be recognized not only by you. But it will be recognized by those who know you. And I would again caution you to look for the validation that comes from people. Some have told me, which is nice to hear, one is a friend of mine. He said, you know, we're so proud of the way you turned out. Now, he's my age, and I've known him since we were little kids, but it's still nice to hear. But with all due respect to my lifelong friend, I'm not looking for the validation from any man. I'm looking for the birth that came from Jesus Christ. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Now I'm going to put this into our parlance. When Jesus said the wind blows where it wants. 
and you can hear the sound, but you can't tell where it comes and where it's going. And listen to me. Well, listen to Jesus. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. We don't control it. Preachers don't control it. You could throw numbers up, and many churches do. How many we've had, this, that, the other thing. But only God knows who's the next one that he's going to give his spirit to, to truly be born again. And listen, when you're born again, you will be the first to know it. You will be the first to know it. And then in time, others will notice that you've changed. I would venture to say, some people may say, well, it was a good change. Whatever, is, it's working for you. I had someone say that to me not too long ago. Whatever you're doing, keep it up. It's working for you. I just told him, it's Jesus. But we don't know. I don't know. I don't know the condition of all of your hearts. I don't know. No man knows. God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, he knows who is the one is going to be born again. Now, it is certainly predicated on the heart of man that we respond to the call of God. Yet, you don't control it. And I don't control it. And I want to say to you as a preacher, as a father, as a husband, in an odd way, it's a relief to me that I know the only person I'm responsible for and the only person that I can, quote, control is myself. I've had people come to me and share with me the malfeasance of someone in my congregation. My answer is a pat one. I don't control what they do. I mean, when you're in here, we have rules. And they're complied with. Mostly protocol of how we conduct ourselves inside the sanctuary and so on. But I don't control what people do when they leave the church building. I don't control what people do. They only control me. You only control you. So we have to be a people of prayer. The wind blows where it wants, verse 8. And you hear the sound, but you can't tell from where it's coming. And you don't know where it's going. And he uses that as an analogy of those that are truly born again. So you can have a church meeting as we have this morning. And in every, at least again in my view, in every church meeting there's always a mixed multitude. Some are truly born again of the Spirit of God and some are not. Percentages may differ from church to church, church meeting to church meeting, but that's my view like we see in the book of Exodus. Israel left with a mixed multitude and as the years went on it caused them a lot of problems. And here with the religious nature of man being flesh, Habits are habits. Is going to church meetings a good habit? I think so, yes. But it does not mean you're born again. That's something you have to do by repentance. God gives the grace. God gives the mercy. God gives the spirit. God supplies all things. But our heart has got to turn to be fully engaged with the Lord. That's Christianity with Christ. I believe we're living in a time that we have... Far too many church organizations that have some form of Christianity, but it's not Christ. Even the creeds and the doctrines may be sound, but Christ is not there just like it was with the Ephesians. They had everything in place except one thing. They no longer had Jesus. That, my friends, is a problem, a very big problem, as you can certainly figure out. Being born of the Spirit. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8, which outlines what this life looks like. Christianity without Christ, in my opinion, that's what we have far too much of at the moment. Christ without a cross, disciples without discipline, the promise of forgiveness, but no repentance. 
persistence in a lifestyle that God condemns, and so on. Verse 2, Romans chapter 8 says, The law of the Spirit. Now that you have context to John 3, we know he's not just talking about spirituality by some vague, amorphous definition. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. When we go over to 1 John, which we're not today, but if we were to go there, it tells us that whosoever is born again does not sin. Now, if we were to take that literally, or extremely literally, there would be none of us here that could claim to be born again. What it means is that we no longer willfully sin against God as we read His commands in the book. Verse 3 says, What the law could not, not the law is holy, but what the law could not accomplish in that it was weak through our flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. At some point in Jesus' ministry, when it was questioned, he said, which one of you convinces me of sin? Eventually they did and they crucified him, but it was a false charge. The only human being that never sinned was God himself come in the flesh, the perfect sacrifice. He condemned sin in the flesh. Look at verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I'm not going to read the verses today, but we read the word of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Goes through fornication, sex outside the bonds of marriage, between men and women. And a whole list, a short list, but a whole list, another list is in Galatians 5, of what are the works of the flesh. We read here today, verse 5, They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, to be minded all the time of the sinful propensities of the flesh, the carnal mind is God's enemy. Remember through the prophet Isaiah, God says, My ways are not your ways. I shared with you that for many, many years I wore my watch upside down. I don't any longer, but I did for many, many years. Many years, decades. So that whenever I read the time, I always remembered that God's ways are not my ways. And that my time is in His hands, not my hands. Verse 6. To be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So you answer this question for yourself later. Why is it that so many professing Christians lack peace? And I find it irksome when people talk in nuances of peace as though it's not attainable. If it was not attainable, Jesus was certainly insincere when he said, Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give unto you. Are we going to contradict the master and say, You really didn't mean that because I don't have any peace. My friend, don't contradict Jesus. If there's something missing, look in yourself and say, why am I not? I mean, because I do this all the time. Why am I not experiencing the fullness of the promise? I don't say, God, there's something wrong with you. That's not intelligent. It borders on blasphemy if it's not blasphemous. I go to God and I say, what am I missing? Show me. The same way we approach communion. What am I missing? You know, this week in the news alone, along with, well, last month alone, two shootings in our city which never could happen here, only happens in big cities. No, sin is a cancer, it's reaching every level of humanity. We have all of these signs, 
Maui people jumping into the ocean for the wildfires. The politics that we have here in America that has not an ounce of God in it. And all of the things that we're seeing and reading. But my question is this. We see, we read, we hear, but where is the peace? Again, in the book of Isaiah, God says there is no peace to the wicked. They're like the troubled sea, bringing up all the muck and mire from the bottom, but there is no peace. So you want to go before God and say, why am I not experiencing the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love and joy and peace. You see, this is how I conduct myself. I'm not interested in the opinions of other people. I want to know what am I missing? God help me to straighten it out. And whatever I have to do to attain it, for me, having inner peace is one of the greatest commodities you could have while living in this world. Yeah. Along with joy. Now, I'm not saying, don't misinterpret me, all these disasters around the world, so many of them. Oh, let me just say this to you, because you've read about it. I find it very intriguing, I really do, that just not even a month ago, they had a congressional hearing on UFOs. And for many, many people, people who talk about UFOs are always on the lunatic fringe. They're not serious. They're not even intelligent people. Remember, that's how they look at us too. Keep that in mind. But I have read up on it. I've read Christian book. I've read secular book. And it's interesting to me that three credible witnesses, officers in the Air Force, in the military, have come forth saying we've seen the craft and we've seen biological specimens. Were they lying to Congress? I don't know. But I do know that we're seeing phenomena that we cannot fully explain, that we don't know, that Jesus said these would be signs in the generation that my coming is very close. And you don't want to be found in the position when Jesus comes and you are in a place where you should not be. Morally, or psychologically we could say, or physically, where you shouldn't have been there. When the knock comes at the door and you say, Lord... You know, and he says, I never knew you. You never complied. And always keep this in mind. God gains nothing from our compliance. I got a couple of good doctors. And if I do not do what they say, predicated upon the fact that the advice is sound and it's good, I can't say it's the doctor's fault. I did not comply with the instructions given to me. Jesus, the great physician, we must comply with his orders, with his precepts, with his principles in order to attain the promise. People are getting edgy, they're getting nervous, they're very stressed. My dear friends, this was not part of our inheritance. And I say this with all due respect. Whatever your trajectory may be, I'll tell you mine. Mine is to get from the Lord what he's promised. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure that I get it. I want to be responsible and at my post and dutiful, but I'm finding the Lord's kindness to me, I'm speaking as a testimony, the Lord's kindness to me is showing me, you're worried about something that you shouldn't be worried about. Stop thinking about it. And I may say to the Lord, but this is really important because it's so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so. and God keeps telling me, let my peace rule in your heart. But God's peace can't rule in my heart if I'm violating him. If I'm looking at scriptures that are so plain, literally anyone can read them, but not everyone can understand them. That, you need the Holy Spirit. And looking at the promise and saying, well, you know, no, well, nothing. It's right there. And what I wanted to say was this. Never entertain the thought that God is gaining something from you. Whether we start with our wallets and our giving and our money or our prayer life or whatever. God gains nothing. He's God. Amen. 
Whatever he says to do is for our benefit, the benefit of our friends, neighbors, relatives, and so on. If they don't receive it, our hands are clean. Sorrowful, perhaps, but clean. I've said to you over the years many, many times, in this hour of history, with so much going on, you would think that every building where Christians meet would be flooded with people. But it's not. And the reason that it's not is because of what the scriptures say. In the last days, and you read it from 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, perilous times shall come, as it wedged between chapter 2 and chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, is speaking of those who profess to be Christians. And one verse that was in my mind coming to church this morning, they will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You could talk to people who are not here for weeks or months at a time. Ask them, do you love God? Yeah, I love God. But the evidence is not there. The evidence is not there. Best we all just look in the mirror and say, Lord, help me. Lord, I believe, but help those areas of my unbelief. The signs are so compelling. The evidence is so compelling when you take everything and put it all together. There's so much going on, it's hard to really keep up with it all. But there's enough compelling evidence to say Jesus is knocking at the door. And where do you want to be found when Jesus comes? Who do you want to be found serving? We won't go to the verses for now for lack of time. But Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He'll hate the one, love the other, despise the one, cling to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is curious. Because that's one of the exact things we have in the church. And it's not just coming from the con artists. It's coming from people who talk as though the corporations they work for or the companies they work for and on and on, that they control their fate and destiny. Israel was rebuked for this type of idolatry. Asa, for example, in 2 Chronicles 16, when it was being overwhelmed by Israel, 10 nations up above Judah, the last two nations, he went to the king of Egypt for help to attack Israel. And they did. And he went into the Lord's treasury took the gold and whatever he had and paid him. And the job was done. It worked. Then Hanani comes to him, prophet. He says, in this hearing you've done foolishly. And he goes through other armies that they faced. He says, you beat them for one reason, because you relied on the Lord. Now, therefore, from this time on, you're going to have wars. But he precedes that remark by saying this. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. He says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him. That was in the 36th year of Asa's reign. But what's curious, if you read down in chapter 16 of Second Chronicles, three years later, in the 39th year of Asa's reign, he becomes diseased in his feet. And then his disease, it says, became exceeding great. And he died. But here's what it says at the end. Because he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. It is not saying don't go see a doctor. It's simply saying that men are men and are limited. You can go to four different doctors and get five different opinions. They're still men and women and they make mistakes. But he says you had success in your kingdom because you went to the Lord. We must never forget this lesson here in the church. We do it God's way. Who comes, comes. Who leaves, leaves. I don't control that. And you don't control that. We just need to make sure that what we are doing is pleasing to the Lord. Amen. Christianity is not Christianity without Christ. 
It is the form of godliness, but denies the power. For me, I never signed on for more rituals, more traditions, more meaningless drivel that produces nothing. I signed on, and I'm still signed on, to have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. I did not sign on for a religion that has not Jesus in it, but uses his name. How about you? Some in here will say, I've been in church since I was a child, and so was I. And so was I. I've been in church meetings since I was a child. I was in the second grade at a Catholic Mass when I heard a voice speak to me. I knew nothing about what we know now, nothing about the Bible. And the voice spoke to me and said, if you really love me, you'll kneel throughout this Mass. Now, if you've been in Catholic services, it's kneeling, it's sitting, it's standing, it's kneeling, it's sitting. I kneeled through the whole Mass just in obedience to this voice. Who I didn't know, like young Samuel, hears a voice, thinks it's Eli. I didn't know. I remember getting actually a little bit nauseous because, you know, it was young, I was a little boy. The next day, the teacher, which was Sister of Charity, a nun, made a remark about me, a good one, about loving the Lord and so on. And I often tell people, I truly have no clue, like we read in John 3, I have no clue why God touched me and called me. I don't know. I truly don't know. I just know that he did. And I'm saying to you, I cannot rely on my history. Say, I've been in church all my life. I got it made. I've paid my dues. I didn't pay my dues. Jesus paid my dues. I'm not going to heaven because I've been faithful to church services. I'm going to heaven because I'm born again by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And you will not make the kingdom until you are born of the Spirit of God. I'm not going in front of Jesus and say I've been in services since before I was born. Every one of my children, all five of them, were brought to church services while they were in my wife's womb. But that doesn't make them Christians. They must decide that for themselves. I've made my decision for me to follow Jesus all the way, all the way down the line. God helped me to keep that commitment to the end. We do not want Christianity without Christ. But I can tell you this, prophetically speaking, and I mean prophetically here, what's written in the book. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the last days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We want the Lord's words. And we do not want Christianity without Christ. As long as God keeps me in a pulpit like this, and His grace has continued to be poured out upon me, I'm going to be faithful to what this book says. Regardless of where it falls, regardless of who believes and who doesn't believe, regardless of all these things, that's not only my duty, it's yours as well. I know that you'd want Christianity with Christ, because I know so many of you and I've known you for so long, but let's make sure we are endeavoring to have it. And I'll give you this one last thing. Of all the things that you could do that in your mind really pleases God, in your mind, I'll give you the one that he said pleases him. If you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? You want me to travel? I'll be a missionary overseas. Give my life. And he says, no, not necessarily. Love one another. Amen. And you say, I don't love him or her because it's him. I'm saying it's you. That's right. How do I know that? We nailed him to the cross. And he loved us in spite of it. We love him. He's easy to love. He's God. 
Let's go before the Lord. Again, I'm under the assumption you're here so frequently, so often, that you want Christianity with Christ in it, Christ of the book. And so we keep pursuing him, keep going after Christ. Don't make up your own rules. Some people slack and they don't do it. Some people add to it. That's what the Pharisees did. They kept adding to the book and adding to the book and adding to the book. They thought they're fasting. They prayed longer. And God says it's for nothing. Your traditions are vain. They're taught by men. All you got to do is read the book. Let's go before God. Father in Jesus' mighty name, we pray that we would have Christianity with Christ, with this Bible, with compliance to your commands. Turn our hearts, O God. Turn our hearts towards you fully, that we may not have a conscience that speaks against us, that keeps us up at night, that disturbs our peace. But let us be like the Apostle Paul that says, I endeavor to have a conscience that is clear and clean before God and men. Help us, God, not to be pharisaical by adding to the word and adding to the word and adding to the word. And certainly we don't want to take away from it. Father, we bless you this morning and we praise you for certainly you are great and greatly to be praised. Help us, God, to understand, because we've heard it reiterated so many times, worship, music, same thing. No, it's not. It's not. Worship is how we live, in the dark, in the daylight, wherever we go. Song singing is part of it, a relatively small part. Worship is how we live. In these last days, as we see the signs everywhere, as we see phenomenal things in the heavens, in the stars, on earth, Men's hearts failing them for fear of what is coming on the earth. We ask for your help, O oh God. We see Jesus with his face set like a flint heading towards Jerusalem. Let us have the same demeanor and attitude towards setting our hearts on the kingdom. And to walk straight, to be found faithful in the end. Lord, keep us from the deceptions that are out there. People come along and say, God told me this and God told me that. Even from well-intentioned people. Help us not to be naive, to be dedicated to your book. God, we give you all the praise, not some of it, and take no credit for anything in our lives concerning being saved. Your wind blew upon us, didn't know when it was coming, certainly didn't know where it was taking us. Even now, we only know in part, but you called us when we did not know you. You called our name. And we heard the good news. For there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For these things we give you the praise. And we have taught in 37th Psalm, 7th verse. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. And delivereth him. And his promises they will be true. How about we just rededicate our lives to the Lord today? You're going through stress and who isn't? Let's just rededicate ourselves to Christ and keep going forward. So Lord, right now in the hearts of the people in front of me, those that are listening on the radio, help them to rededicate themselves to be faithful to the end and to be able to attain the very promises that you gave to us mentioned in the sermon, but there's so much more. Help us, God. And we give you all the praise. Give you all the glory. We give you all the honor today in Jesus' name. Can you say amen today? Amen. amen. amen.